Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Last Tuesday night, we held our latest Blister Speaker Series at Western Colorado University, where we host influential figures of the outdoor industry right here in the beautiful Gunnison Valley of Colorado. Our guest was Luke Jacobson, the CEO of Moment Skis, which is the largest ski manufacturer in the U.S. And if that sounds surprising to you, then you will definitely want to listen up. Luke shares with us what it's been like managing the significant growth of this indie brand, manufacturing in Sparks, Nevada, crucial decisions he's had to make and how he would now assess those decisions in hindsight, and as has become a staple of these Blister Speaker Series events, the audience at Western once again did not disappoint. And there was even one write-in question from the CEO of another indie ski company, so keep your ears open for that. And now, let's get to our conversation from University Center Theater on the campus of Western Colorado University with Luke Jacobson. Hey everybody, welcome to this latest installment of the Blister Speaker Series. Uh, Thank you all for coming out. A little bit of business here before we get started. There is a sign-up going around. It is a good sign-up. One lucky person here is going to win a pair of moment skis, any moment ski you want. So stick around when the Q&A wraps. We'll uh, quickly see if anybody else needs to get on that, and then we will announce one lucky winner. So tonight, I'm very pleased to have with us Luke Jacobson, who is the CEO and head ski designer of Moment Skis. Moment is building and manufacturing skis in Sparks, Nevada, where they have always been built. And um, I've known Luke a long time. I've been kind of privy to see from a fairly close point of view this evolution of the company and uh, Luke's role and evolution of Luke's role in that company. And um, he's one of the people that we really enjoy talking about ski design and the ski industry and the ski business. And uh, so we're very happy to have him here tonight. And uh, with that, let's bring up Luke Jacobson. So you're the CEO of Moment Skis. Tell us a bit about Moment. Um, How do you talk about Moment these days in its current iteration? So yeah, we make skis in Reno, Nevada. We're actually uh, the largest ski manufacturer in the U.S. A lot of people like outsource. There's a lot of bigger snowboard guys in the U.S., but we're, we're producing the most skis as a ski company in the U.S. So that's what we like to talk about. And, um, you know, we do almost every single process in-house. And we have, you know, 18 different skis for men, women, park, freestyle, touring. And, uh, yeah, keeps us out of trouble. And that's one thing that, um, again, just to give a bit of the backstory here and not to start too far down the road, Moment is an indie ski company. Indie ski company, yep. Um, But there is quite a bit of variation in terms of when you mention here that you do most of the processes in-house. 
Yep. That is not necessarily true or a given when we lump together a lot of these indie companies, right? Yeah, well, like a lot of brands that are out there um, pretty much just get their stuff made overseas or by a big conglomerate. And then some people, like, they don't really do everything in-house. Like, a lot of people don't have, like, core manufacturing in-house or sidewall profiling in-house, all these, like, little intricacies, intricacies to make the skis. So we'd like to, to make everything in-house start to finish. You know, we're not, like, making the base material, but we order the base material and turn that into an edged base and things like that. Yeah. We're going to cover a lot of ground here, yeah. so we'll try to move kind of quickly, but it's there's a lot to cover. And so I think the first thing that is really important for people to understand in your sense, um, I, I called you the CEO and head ski designer, but in a lot of ways you are a ski builder before you're a CEO type of thing. I mean, that yeah. that's kind of the right order. Let's talk about your own story. When did you first get some kind of inkling like, I want to build skis? It didn't like dawn on me. It's not like something I always wanted to do. Uh, but I actually went to uh, the University of Hawaii my first year of college. I ended up graduating from University of Nevada, Reno. Um, but I went there and I had always grown up skiing and ski racing and doing the free ride thing and all that. But I was just like, I want to do something different, go to Hawaii, like, totally no mountains really, you know, just let's go surfing and try something new. Uh, started down a degree that I wasn't interested in. Everyone always, like my parents and family, they were like, you're going to be a mechanical engineer. And I was like, no, I'm not. So I like tried to do something else and it, it was horrible. They were right. And um, I What's was... the other thing you tried? It was computer science. So it was, uh, I don't know, I was just going to hack the planet or something like that. But um, yeah, it wasn't that wasn't that interesting because you're like designing something that just like lived on a screen like I like grew up in the garage with my dad like working on cars and you know things like that and I always just wanted something like tangible to work with and so um yeah honestly I was watching a skateboard video one day and like this pro skateboarder was just like talking about how skateboarding super cool because he could do it as a kid and he's doing it as an adult and I was like oh wow like well I'm not gonna be a pro skier especially living in Hawaii but um I could make skis, you know? And then there was like some smaller ski companies at the time that had just started, um, Armada started. And like, it didn't really dawn on me that you could, you know, make your own skis. And I saw that they were doing it. And so I ended up writing an email. JP Eclair actually made a video about just like the three Armada skis or whatever it was back then, I don't know. And at the end, there was like a couple of questions that JP uh, asked the CEO, Hans Smith, and so I, I, I had no idea who he was before then. And so I just like wrote an email to info at armadaskis.com or whatever it is. And I was like, to Han Smith. And I was like, hey, you know, I'm thinking about going into mechanical engineering, like not sure if this is like the right thing. Like I'm not asking for a job or an internship, but like, what would you like to see on a resume? And he was super cool. He sent me an email like 30 minutes later and was like, hey, give me a call tomorrow on my cell or whatever it was. And I called him and like, uh, our model like started in Southern California. And so like we talked about surfing and, and just like ski stuff. Yeah. And then, uh, I decided, okay, I'm done with Hawaii. I'm going to go to UNR and then started trying to get a job in the ski world. While you're still in school and like after your first year, second year, this was first semester, first semester. College. Yeah. Yeah. So you're an undergrad yeah. already talking to Hans Smith 
and thinking about like I'm now scheming and I'm I'm thinking through my coursework right now with an end goal of building skis for somebody. Yeah, I mean, if you're doing computer science or engineering, you can't miss a semester. Yeah. You know, like with math and all that stuff. So I knew like I had to like, am I going to commit to this? Is this what I want to do? Because like I already made the stupid choice, at least for me, that computer science wasn't the thing, right? So I was like, I need to figure this out quick. So I'm not just like blowing money. So you're an undergrad. Then when do you get connected with Moment? And is that the first ski company that you ended up getting connected with? Yeah, I talked to a lot of people. So I got <laughs> done with Hawaii and I moved to UNR. I knew some guys that went there, University of Nevada, Reno, and got into the engineering program and was actively, so like one thing that Hans told me is like, you know, like we don't make our skis, Atomic makes our skis, but you know, like you need to, like the mechanical engineering degree is like the right degree to have to design skis. But you know, for people that work for us that design, like you need to know how all these raw materials come together. Cause there's only like a couple edge manufacturers in the world. Like you're blending a lot of pieces together. Like, you know, we use the same edge as like 90% of the ski companies out there. So like to be able to design a ski, you need to know how the raw material comes in. So I was like, okay, well I need to go like learn what that raw material looked like. Cause I didn't know what like still all the different ski edge profiles and things like that. That's just one example. So, um, you know, I was like just trying to get a job anywhere to get experience. And, um, you know, unpaid intern, I'll do whatever you want sort of thing. Um, and then I was talking to a guy that was like, hey, I know a guy in town that's actually making skis. And that was Casey Hawkinson. And he had the name Moment, but he had a um, masonry company. So he was laying block. He was just doing this as a hobby in this guy, like this small snowboard factory. Um, so I tried to reach out to him for a long time, finally got in touch and showed up one day and never left. Hmm. And uh, yeah, like that's really what happened. And like, I was still going to school and he was doing masonry. He had like made a couple pairs of skis. Like the first pair of skis was made in 2003. And then he didn't make another ski for another year. Hmm. And we were essentially just like sharing some equipment with these guys that made snowboards. Um, and um, yeah, just like, we're just having fun, you know, like selling skis to friends and things like that. And, and that's kind of like when it all started. And I didn't know like that Casey was going to become my best friend, that this was going to become a business. Like I just, you know, at the beginning just wanted to learn like what do all these parts look like? Yeah. So Casey sort of moment officially kind of becomes a thing in 2003. Yeah. And how quickly after that, you know, till he, you know, purchases the name or something. And when do you step in? Is that 2000, still 2003, 2004? No, that's like 2004, 2005. Okay. Things are a little fuzzy back then. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So it was around then because it, yeah, five or six is right when it happened. Because um, that was when I was a sophomore at, at UNR and I was back from Hawaii. So, yeah, I was right around then. And um, yeah, we just started like making more skis and, um, then we, a couple years later, we decided we wanted to go to the big trade show and that is SIA. It's called outdoor retailer. Now it's in Denver. I'm sure you guys know. Um, and, but back then it was in Las Vegas, which was a lot closer to us, but actually Vegas is very, it's eight hours away from Reno. People think it's close, but 
we went there, like we made a catalog, we like built a booth, but we really had, I guess we had an intention of selling product, but we just went there to be like taken seriously or something, whatever that meant. Like there was no like, oh, we're gonna be this big ski company, you know, like I was still in college, he was still laying block, being a Mason. And we went down there the morning of SIA, we um, made a price sheet. We, you know, uh, listed the park ski at 420 because we thought that was funny. And um, like there was like, we had no idea what our costs were. We like didn't have QuickBooks. Like we were just like buying material and like buying equipment and like just having fun with it. It was a pure hobby. And then people started um, ordering skis from us. Like retailers came over and bought skis and we're like, oh crap, like cool. <laughs> you know, it was like super overwhelming. We had no, no words and we're like, should we like, I'm like, I need to finish my degree in case he's like, oh man, do you think I could stop laying block and we should do this full time? Like, what do you want to do? You know, and that's when it like started to get serious. So the only part of that story that, or I guess the primary thing I wonder about is getting a booth set up at SIA OR is not a cheap thing. No. So I'm still a little confused at, I mean, we're talking about a, at that time, probably a commitment of, 10 to 20 grand yeah. at least. Yeah. That feels like a significant amount of change when you say that morning we're still writing up a price sheet and or so how how did I guess I'm curious how did you make how did you guys make that decision about I think now we drop 20k to get into this show and then after you decide to do that you're like we should probably figure out what we're going to sell our product for. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been a good idea. Yeah. Um, no. I mean, like, but like a, a like a cheap like ski grinder is twenty grand. Yeah. Like, so you'd already grand is started. Nothing. You'd already started making some capital. Expense. Oh yeah. yeah. But we got really lucky because um, there was this uh, snowboard manufacturer in Southern California, Taylor Dykema, that like made stuff for everybody. It was this massive factory, and they were um, they decided to go like just stop making snowboards and all this stuff. So it was us and Mervin Manufacturing, which is like LibTech and GNU. And then Never Summer was there. And then uh, Five Axis, which became Signal Snowboards, they were there and us. And so we, like if you look at like the presses down at Never Summer up at Mervin, like, and you look at all pictures of all of our factories, they like all look the same because they're all from Taylor Dykema. And so, but like we got like ski presses for like 150 bucks when like, you know, you could recycle the steel for more than that. So like we got super lucky with a lot of equipment, but we had like Casey, we still didn't know if it was gonna work, but like Casey had invested a lot of his, his money into this because um, he just really enjoyed it. And it was, it was like a part business, but we like didn't, we were not good with the business at the beginning at all. Like that was like one of the biggest things we had to learn is like get our act together about which we like, we learned our lesson, you know? Mm -hmm. Like we made a lot of mistakes. So was there much hand-wringing about going to SIA? No, we just wanted to go. Like, we didn't really honestly consider the <laughs> cost. Like, we just kind of went. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we spent money on the booth. Like, we made samples. We printed yeah. a catalog. Um, I mean, yeah, we wanted, to, we wanted to sell skis. We wanted to do it, but we didn't believe that it could actually happen until people were, like, writing orders. Mm-hmm. So let's call that the decision to go to SIA a pretty pivotal moment in the history of the company. 
I want to fast forward to another pivotal moment and then we'll kind of go back and maybe fill in some of the middle ground, right? But yep. it seems to me that um, an important part of this story then is Casey decides to kind of take a step back from the company. And I yep. think that's around 2014. Yeah, okay. yeah, right around there. Talk to me about that decision. What did that do in terms of your role and the like? Yeah, so... Um, you know, Casey had made, uh, you know, a handful of skis before I got there and like had a lot of stuff set up and then like the, the brand really started evolving and, you know, adding more materials and developing the process and people actually buying skis and it becoming a business and, um, him and I doing it full time. And then, um, we had some really good winners and we had some bad winners. Some of that was, um, economic issues. Some of that was like just weather. Some of that was just like us just making bad choices, you know? So we had some ups and downs, but there was a lot of solid growth in there. Um, and then, like I said, when this all started, Casey was doing masonry, laying block uh, company, like he was doing that with his dad. His dad started this company and it's a very successful company. And um, so his dad came to a point when his dad wanted to retire. And he was like, Casey, you know, like you're doing moment, like it's had its up and down through some of these winners. Like, do you want to keep doing that? Or, you know, what am I supposed to do with the company? Do you want to take this over? And um, it was a super hard decision for Casey because like he's put his heart and soul in the moment for like a super long time. And, um, you know, he thought about it for a long time, like well over a year. But then, you know, he's like, at this point in time, he's married, he has a kid. Um, he now has a couple kids, but you know, it's like, well, there's a lot of up and downs in the ski world. Like probably running this masonry business is a little bit more stable. And I just can't think about myself now. You know, I think that was part of his decision. I can't really speak for him, but there's a lot of stuff. And he was getting like, we took a lot of blows over the years. We had a lot of wins and things have always been like really awesome. But you know, he was a little, it's, it's been stressful, you know, over all those years of running a business. And so I, you know, he eventually made that choice to take over his dad's business and essentially was like, handed me the keys. Cause him and I have always been like business partners the whole time. He's like the best guy in the world. And it was always a, a lot of joint decisions as far as whatever ski design went or materials or direction of the brand and all these things. So he was like, hey, you've been there the whole time. Here are the keys, like, you know, make me proud sort of thing. And, and yeah, that was, happened between 14 to 16, right in there, like the decision and the transition. And then he just, one day he was gone. And like, really didn't like, I didn't see him cut for like a while until I had like questions on accounting. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how ready, how prepared did you feel to kind of take over at the helm? Yeah. And we talked about the fact that you, you know, you liked working in the garage, you liked building skis, you were a mechanical engineer. That is yeah. not exactly the same skill set per se, or even the same, you know, the, a person could do all of that and be very good at it and have no interest in running a company. Yeah. Had you always kind of had a bug to run the show of a business? Was this something that you picked up later out of necessity because somebody needed to be at the helm? Like, what, what was that like for you? Yeah, um, well, I always like never considered myself an entrepreneur or really knew what that word was when I was a kid, but I was always kind of selling stuff like 
our main artist who does all the artwork now before moment him and I had like a we had a t-shirt company in college and stuff so we you know I had little businesses and always wanted to make little ones um, but you know like when you run a small business you need to do everything like you need to figure out like how your supply chain works and you know figure out how all your costs come together eventually and you know at the beginning I was making fun of how we worked and didn't have any of that down but now we have a very good understanding of our costs and, and understand all that. So, you know, and we learned that over the years, Casey and I did together. And um, so when it came time to take over, I thought I was ready. I was really scared too, you know, cause like right now, like when Casey and I would make a choice, we could yeah. like talk to each other, yeah. right? And now it was like really just me. And I had like a younger version of me like me 2.0, who's now my right-hand man, uh, Max Smith, you know, I was kind of like grooming him into a higher role, but he started as an intern for us, you know, unpaid intern. And I was just like, crap, you know, like we want to make skis. I want to do this right. And so I was like, I got this, we'll figure it out. And, um, it was a rude awakening. Like it was really hard to do that, um, by myself, but luckily, um, I learned a lot of hard lessons like, you know, like we were really way too lax at our, with our employees prior. And I was like, Hey guys, we got to work. And like, because like Casey was gone, they still thought Casey was the boss. And like, they would take like two hour lunches and I'd be like, Hey, we got to make skis guys. And they're like, well, you're not paying us. And I was like, well, we're only open so many hours. We've got to make some more product here, you know? And then like guys were like quitting and I had to fire other guys and hire new people. And so I'm just trying to do everything myself. But luckily, Max Smith is there, and he's just like all in. So it was cool, and Max uh, has a degree in mechanical engineering as well. And so he is like, yeah, I mean, he just jumped on. Him and I were just like living there, like the original moment days. Like Casey and I used to like get done with, I was getting done with school, and he was getting done laying block. And we'd stay there until like 3 a.m. just making skis. And like when that transition happened, it was just like day one all over again, like three in the morning, just stressed doing everything ourselves. Hmm. So that was like incredibly overwhelming, but um, it's definitely been, uh, I mean, it sucks that Casey's not there, but it's been like the, the employee change and the restructuring and just how everything happens now has been like only for the better, for the business. So we kind of had to go through that struggle again. The hiring thing is just always, I think, a, a, an incredibly difficult thing. I think anybody running a company of any kind, that's a consistent thing that comes up, right? Yeah. I'm curious if now you've identified anything, and we'll just keep this to your specific business, right? But any traits in general that you now are looking for an employee, any like tells that are give you pause, um, what have you learned over the years? Or is it still just like, yeah, it's a crapshoot and sometimes you get lucky and somebody's great and who knows? Yeah, no, I mean, I like to think, I, sometimes you like you hire someone and they work out and you're like, oh, well, look at all these attributes, right? Oh yeah. And then you like try to find that same person again and it doesn't work out. Like we, we had this girl, Robin, who like did prep and that's like cutting like the fiberglass and like taking the sidewall, attaching it to the core, like handling like a, like a couple CNC automated machines and like cutting some raw goods and staging all these different pieces together to get them over to layup. And she just wanted like a, she ran a food truck in the summer. And so she just wanted a job in the winter 
and but because she was a chef and could like manage like a stove and an oven and all this stuff going around, she was amazing. Mm -hmm. And I was like, we just need to hire chefs. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's so, awesome. But yeah, like, uh, no. So, I mean, like, I like to try to find people that like work, like if they grew up like working on their own car, like if they've held a wrench before, because like it's hands on, like blue collar work. Yeah. You know? So, um, but you know what? People continue to surprise me. And they continue to let me down as well, <laughs> as far as employees go. So I, I don't have a, a foolproof answer yet. Yeah. But I'm working on it. Yeah. Yeah. So over the years, um, two important things of what you guys do: build skis, build product, refine those products. Let's call that one camp. Yep. And there's a second, turns out, pretty important aspect, which is the marketing of that of that stuff that you've just built. Let's talk first about the, the building and the refining. Um, just talk about that process over the years. And I mean, you guys are building in Nevada yep. and uh, whether you wanna talk about that or whether it's just about, turns out when you try to repeat processes over and over, you learn a bunch of stuff along the way. Talk to me about some of the best things you've learned or some of the biggest screw ups in the, the process of manufacturing. Yeah, so just, uh, I mean, we're, I think we're in like a really cool spot right now. Um, when you first start like a small company, like I was saying earlier, like there's only two places in the world to buy Ski Edge. There's like three worthwhile base companies in the world. And, um, you know, you can laminate your own wood core and you take all these raw goods in. And um, when you're super small, you don't get access to the good materials. Cause you're really not a worth, like you're not worthwhile as like a customer to those big guys, you know, like Isosport who makes like all the top sheet that's on our skis and all the big brand skis in Europe. Like they're not going to sell to like a guy trying to build in the garage. So there's been a lot of refinement over the years of just like growing the brand and like finding all these elements to make them work good enough to like sell enough stuff to have access to better things, you know? Um, but really the biggest design criteria, like even though I'm a mechanical engineer and so is Max and there's all these, all this computer software like skiing and it's super personal, right? It's all about feeling. So um, we take so much design feedback from uh, what you say and uh, no, uh, but like our athletes and Blister, our customers or whatever. And we take that feedback and we put it into our skis. Like, cause we're, we're blending different types of wood in our core that we deal directly with the lumber mill and Minnesota for. So we're blending aspen and pine and ash and maple and all this different stuff um, to make, make the ski come together. And when we do that, we need to make it in an efficient manner in the factory. So it's, you know, does it ski well? That's one thing. Is it strong? Is it going to, you know, last a long time? Your skis are expensive. You know, we want the consumer to have a good experience. Like we're skiers first. We want to make a really cool ski that's fun. You know, sometimes we make these cool skis that we never put out just because like there's something that's so similar in our lineup. So then we kind of come up with a better version of that. Um, but a lot of it just comes down to like breaking it in the factory, like um, making sure because we're gluing everything together with our epoxy and we have to, you know, there's like 10 different types of material that need to stick together and then flex over and over and over again and take abuse. So there's a lot of, we need to make sure it's strong enough and then we need to make sure it skis well. So that's kind of a vague 
bit of what we do. Ski test and break stuff yeah. to refine the design process. Would you, so just to be clear, would you say over the last like 10 years, would you care to rank those things? Like efficiency of production, that's been the biggest kind of advancement for you guys or, or is it, or durability? Or how do you think about the, let's just put it in the last decade. Yeah, um, I mean, it just depends what stage we're in there. Like, we are never satisfied. We want to make our product better every year. Um, and so, like, you know, years ago, like, we can have problems with certain skis because, like, you know, ski bindings, the screws go in, like, certain models somehow, like, they can have, like, we've never had a, a major recall issue or something like that. But, you know, sometimes, like, this model, like, a couple people pulled out of this ski with their binding this year. Like, what's going on with that? So, like, we go and we take a look at that. And we always refine that process, you know? Um, you know, or we make mistakes and the skis become blem and just go into the dumpster. So we have to re refine the manufacturing process. And then there's the people in the factory there. Everyone thinks it's really cool to make skis. You're making the same thing over and over and over again. It is like, my employees are amazing. Like they're just cutting the same thing all day. And so we're always trying to make that process more efficient because the more widgets or skis we can pump out a day, you know, like the, the cheaper, like my cost of rent is and you know, things like that. Um, so it's more for like quality of life of the employee to make things more efficient, to pump out more skis a day. Um, and, and they just, they go back and forth because when you make something better, as far as durability or ski ability, it gets more popular. Now you need to make more in your supply and demand, but now your factory can't supply that demand. So you need to make it more efficient. So they kind of go back and forth on each other. The better you make something, the more you got to make of it. Marketing, the, the kind of perhaps the flip side to this coin, right? So you're working hard, you're building all this stuff, you're refining, you got to get word out there and maybe tell a story. How, how natural has that been for you guys or for you in particular, or how much have you refined that over the years? Talk to me about that element of the business. Well, luckily, skiing is cool. Turns out. And skiers like to see pictures of people skiing. Turns out. So, um, I mean, when we first started, it was just like the Teton Gravity Research Forums and NewSchoolers.com. Like, we just went on there and talked on the forums. Like, that's how we started. Um, and then, I mean, I think at that time, like, we had a MySpace page. That was Sick. pretty cool. I think, I think Friendster was already dead by then. Um, but... Yeah, so I mean, it's just, it's pretty easy to talk about skiing, you know? And, but now it's a lot different as the brand grows. Like we just, we have a bigger audience than just talking to people on forums. And so um, beyond just like trying to sell stuff, like talking to our customer through our marketing is like part of the brand. That's how we like develop the ski. Is it working? Do they like it? Do they not like it? Um, and um, that's super important to us. So like on our website, like almost all hours of the day, you can go on there and like a little live chat window will pop up and it will be me or Fossa or Max or one of the guys. And like, we want to get people stoked on the product for marketing. So like, we're trying to be, be very personable all the time because like, yeah, we can just like try to sell you whatever, just cause you think the graphic is cool. But if you go out and you have a bad time on it, like you're not going to be pumped. But if you can get on the right ski and like absolutely love it, 
you're going to be the best marketer for us possible because you're going to love it. You're going to tell all your buddies to buy it. This is the best thing ever. So like we want to make sure people are on the right product. Um, and then, you know, like, like I said, like we're still like posting photos on social media, skiing and, and you know, video. And then, you know, if you go to our website, you'll get cookied and you go somewhere else, we're going to hammer you with banner ads. <laughs> Especially if you put something in our shopping cart. Fair so, warning. But that's one thing you can do too, like because people do like um, abandoned cart emails. Like we don't do it, but like with a lot of companies, like make an account, log in, add something to the shopping cart, and leave. Like an hour later, you will probably get a discount code from most brands because mm-hmm. they're really bummed you didn't check out. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of like digital marketing strategies, you know, to like go and and talk to the consumer. But luckily, like it's it's pretty like honest, like conversational marketing and, and they want to see skiing and we want to show it and we want to hear from the customer. Talk a bit about your growth then. Um, has this, I mean, you've been involved from 2005-ish. Has it felt like a kind of slow and steady trajectory? Has it felt like actually a pretty fast and steady trajectory or just crazy ups and downs or have there been moments that have been kind of big catalytic moments um, that kind of spiked growth and put you in a different level? Yeah, I mean, at first it was super overwhelming because it was like, well, we're going to try to make, you know, 10 pairs in two weeks. And that was just when it was a hobby. Yeah. But then it's like, hey, we're going to be a company. How many are we going to make? Oh, we're going to make 50 pairs. But then it's like, oh, now we're going to make 250 pairs. Now we're going to make 1,000. We're going to make 2,000. So, like, it always felt overwhelming. Like, when we were, like, in the lower thousands numbers, like, it was a big ramp up to that point. And then there was like some bad years. And then it came back and like last year was just absolutely insane. It was our best winter to date. And that like, we're just like still climbing right now. We're like beating last winter and just as far as volume and sales and all that. And how much of that do you attribute to like staying in the game, like literally staying alive as a company, right? Yeah. Um, some of that is like, you gotta, you gotta manage to stay alive every yeah. day before you can hit those moments of growth. Did last year's success feel like this organic thing or would you identify specific moments or things that happened along the way where you felt like that's where we got that bump? No, there's not one thing. Sometimes it's weathering the storm. You know, the economy was really bad yep. for a couple of years. Um, and then like ski shops, there's way too many crappy ski shops that went out of business and like didn't pay bills. Like we went, like we had so much bad debt for years and like things were like really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and like the, at that time there was like so many little ski companies trying to come up that were just like marketing companies like Clint and Corrupt and all these guys like taking away our small market share that we had, you know, and they were just getting their skis made by someone else and trying to sign every pro athlete. So that was incredibly difficult to compete with. Um, Cause there was just like rich guys throwing money at the sport cause they thought it was cool. Um, and then they just left. But, um, so yeah, I mean, we just held on and we just like, we kept doing our thing and it worked out, you know, we just were, we're made, we, we just kind of stayed true to, ourse- true to ourselves. And like certain times we had to like slim down on staff and let some people go, which sucked. Um, and then we ramped back up and tried to do it better the next time. Like, you know, there were certain years we made way too much product and then had to like discount it. And that's like cool for like some consumers, but like it's not healthy to buy like skis aren't $300, like they're not. 
Like there's a reason they're priced at 750. Like we're not making a ton of money, especially like selling, making skis in the US to, USA. It costs a lot of money. Um, so, you know, like, but the last couple of years we've had like a lot of cool things happen. You know, like we, uh, David Wise won a gold medal in Superpipe on our skis and that was a really fun process. And um, we had some cool uh, advertising marketing campaign that Google reached out to us about. And so that was a cool video that like tons of people saw. And, um, you know, like uh, we've just been like, I hired a sales guy <laughs> and that's Fossa. And so he's been getting the word out and like we've just been taking all this feedback and it's not one thing that changed it, but it's just like working hard on every little bit and doing everything we can. And eventually you start to reap the rewards of all that. Speaking again of building in the U.S., um, a lot uh, has been made lately about tariffs. Yeah. And so let's talk about tariffs and materials and how that affects your daily operations. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely like a consideration. Like it makes the cost of things go up. Um, you know, sometimes it's only like 10, 50 cents here and there on some products, but you have to think that if we're selling a ski through a sales rep to a retailer, to a consumer, that $1 to us is $4 to the consumer. So those like changes add up quick um, through all those exchanging of hands and everybody needing to make a profit. Um, you know, the biggest um, effect we've seen on the tariffs are for our steel edge and for the tetanol that is like a special aluminum that goes in our big mountain charging skis. Um, both of those products are from Austria. And so we've seen like a pretty large increase in cost for that. I mean, it makes like for four edges on a pair of skis, it makes it about a dollar 20 more expensive and it makes it more of a headache, um, you know, uh, to, to get it through customs. Cause you never know, like it, things are a little bit more stable now, but for a while, like Trump was just changing stuff all the time. Like you didn't know what was going to happen if you're going to pay way more or way less. So it was hard to price these things. We really don't get much from China. And that's where like a lot of the issues are with some of these companies, you know, it's mainly that steel aluminum tariff with the EU that we see on our end. Knowing as little as you and Casey knew back in, say, 2004, 2005, do you think it would be harder or easier to start Moment today as opposed to back then? So you don't get to come in with a bunch of experience that you've yeah, yeah. earned over the years. Um, I think it would be easier to make our first pair of skis now just because there's, like, so, there's so many more people that have done it and like resources and like YouTube and all this other stuff um, that we didn't have back then. But I don't think that we could have, I don't think I could start Moment now and it'd be Moment. Like it's a, t there's like a time and place thing, right? Because we are still one of the like older indie brands out there now. You know, you try to come now and you like want to start a ski company and it's like, you know, like we were like, oh, like when Casey made his first ski, he wanted to make a ski that didn't exist because it really didn't exist. And sometimes you see these small, uh, small guys in their garage making skis. And I like, I, competition is awesome. Like by all means, like make skis. But like they're just like, their description is like, we wanted to make skis because no one else was making this ski. It's like, come on, dude. There are a lot of really good skis out there. 
Like, what are you doing different? Um, so as long as you're bringing something new and unique to the table and like, you know, promoting skiing and, and trying to divide, diversify things, I think that's really cool. But I, I think we were lucky. There was, you know, we went to ISPO, which is like the Europe uh, SIA, and we made the first Rockard Park ski ever. Like we got uh, like flown there and got a brand new award for that. Um, and so like there's just, it's a lot harder in ski design right now to be unique. I think we were like now all the technologies and, and bindings and boots, that's like the new evolution of skis, you know? It was like before we start, we got in with like, when skis were getting fat and skis were rocker yeah. and we had, we were lucky to be a part of that evolution. Yeah. yeah. As we do here, we're gonna open this up to you guys. This is our Western versus Proust section. So you guys have never let me down before, but if you have questions for Luke, uh, this is your opportunity. So let's see what we've got. I'll ask you one more question while we start uh, getting that mic passed around. What moment ski do you spend the say the last season or two seasons what ski have you personally spent the most time on death wish 190 death wish 190 yeah is there a close second mm, wildcat door okay yeah question so when it comes down to your materials and your process can you speak to um some of the things or do you guys Keep in mind like the environment and trying to like mitigate your impacts on the environment and if so like what are some of the ways they do do that and if you've like sort of just been brainstorming like what are some of the things that you're like planning on moving towards if that's something on your mind yeah um no that's a good question um you know like honestly there are some parts of ski manufacturing that are like not the best for the environment like, I don't want to just like, like lots of people are just like, oh, we use bamboo, we're eco-friendly. It's like that bamboo like was grown in China and then shipped on a boat here to your factory. You know, like, is that sustainable? Like, yeah, bamboo is a grass and it grows fast. But like, you know, we work like all of our wood cores. They're not FSC certified, but like I know the guy in Minnesota that logs it, It's the, the, um, the mill company has been in the family for a long time. And so like, they are just not like knocking down the rainforest to get the wood, you know, like he has to, uh, harvest the forest sustainably. So he has a job next year, you know? And so he, he takes that into mind. Um, the epoxy that we use is 99.9% .9 VOC free. That's, um, the volatile organic, organic compound or whatever that's in there, the nasty stuff. So like our guys at layup, they don't need to use a respirator or anything like that. So we're not using real nasty stuff there. Um, the UHMW, which is like the P-TEX, the base and the sidewall, like all of our scrap, we try to like recycle that. Um, we don't use nasty screen printing inks in our process. Um, we use sublimation, which is a water-based ink. And then after that paper transfers the graphic onto the top sheet or base, we take that paper and we use it as packaging when we ship the skis. So we try to do that. Um, a lot of the sawdust that is byproduct of profiling the cores. Um, we put that to the side in different bags and local ranchers grab that for their horses. And so their horses lay in there, um, you know, but like, honestly, like there's a bunch of like epoxy and extra fiberglass on the sides of the skis after it comes out of the, the press. And we cut that off with the bandsaw that, that goes to the dump. Like, uh, unfortunately we've talked to people about like, ways to like grind it up and maybe put it in asphalt or something like that. Um, 
but it's really difficult to um, to like recycle at our volume. Like um, we've talked to a lot of businesses that want to do it, and um, they come in and they 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 think we're like some massive corporation where they can take our product and then resell it to someone that melts down plastics or whatever it may be. But we're in this like really crappy middle point right now where it's where it's there's there's not a ton of it, but there is some waste product that I wish we had a better way to um, to recycle. Um, but every where we can, we we try to do the best. You know, we we love the outdoors and you know. You touched a little bit on outsourcing globally and then some of the challenges you faced when you were, um, when the tariffs kind of came into place. Are there other challenges that you come across when outsourcing globally versus outsourcing locally? Uh, outsourcing, I mean, like that's purchasing of materials, right? Yeah. Yeah. So our, our, well, like the thing is, is like those materials, that ski edge and that tetanol, mm -hmm. there is no one that makes that material in the United States of America. Um, so, um, we just have to go there. Unfortunately, it's like one thing we have to deal with. Um, you know, like another factor is like we buy our base material from these guys in Ohio who make it. Um, and I could buy that material from Austria, but I choose to, um, it's, it's partially a business decision as they're still on, you know, the U.S. dollar. And I don't have to worry about the volatility of the euro versus our uh, currency, right? I don't have to worry about customs. Um, and then also you can think about the environmental impact on that. I don't have to like buy something that's in Europe, put on a plane or a boat and ship it here. You know, like they're both UHMWPE. And so like those are considerations that come in into play when we're, when we're like sourcing different materials. Um, and sometimes there are a couple materials that are made in the US, but the stuff in, in Europe, it's just better. And so it's like, you know, we, we want to make the best product we can. So we just go with that route, you know. Hi, thanks hey. for being here. Thanks for having me. My question is about the iconic shape of the moment ski. Could you talk a bit more about that, please? Yeah, so some of our skis, not all of them now, but we have like a square tip. And so what happened is, is Casey is not a loud or a cocky guy. And the first pair of skis he made um, had actual black base material. This is the top sheet. We only have one of them now. The other one is lost at Kirkwood, California somewhere. Um, but he, he made this ski and really there were like, now there's a lot of like smaller like garage brands and stuff like that, but there really were not brands like that back then. Um, and so he went and he rode the lift and like no one said anything. And like he wasn't, he didn't make it to get attention. But he was still like really proud of like, hey, I made skis, right? And no one said anything. And they just thought he like spray painted his skis or something like that. And so the next time he made a pair of skis, he just made a big square tip on it. And everyone, he rode the lift and everyone was like, what are those? What are those, man? You know? And so, um, yeah, we have a square tip. Not, I mean, most of the skis do not have a square tip. They're more blunt now. They have some shape to it for um, just manufacturing ease. Um, and just overall aesthetics of not being pigeonholed in the one design. But yeah, that's where it started is he wanted, like we did have graphics capabilities. And so he's like, well, let's hack this thing off. <laughs> I'm, I'm from Reno. So I was just wondering what made you guys decide to set up in the area, set up the company? Uh, 
Well, Casey grew up in Gardnerville, um, just south, like an hour for everyone that hasn't been there. Um, and we just love Tahoe. I grew up on the other side of the Sierra Nevada mountains in Northern California in Auburn and came to UNR. And um, Reno is an awesome community, like Tahoe's right there. It, um, it used to be a lot cheaper and used to be a lot more mellow than it is now, like it's exploding as a city. But um, yeah, it was just, we just had our friends and family and community and love skiing Tahoe there. And it was just, why move, you know? Um, you are clearly an ethically minded company. You talk, I mean, your answers to the environmental question was actually pretty impressive. What you guys do with it shows that you think about these things and you care about things, obviously with your employees and the being made in America and things like that. Um, so with that in mind, you, you're probably aware of the recent fire that's hit backcountry.com for their recent efforts yeah. for um, taking, trying to own the word backcountry and suing small companies who use the word backcountry yeah. in their names. You carry um, your skis on backcountry.com or they carry your skis and you sell with them so you clearly have a relationship with them. And um, Have you considered doing anything or have you done anything to kind of maybe represent your audience and the people who believe that the word backcountry should be in the public domain? Uh, yeah, good question. We were chatting about this a little bit earlier. Um, I first saw that article like two or three days ago and started seeing all the commotion online about it. Um, I have at this point, honestly, just breezed through the articles. And from what I saw, it looks like incredibly disappointing. But I am like, I have not well read on the subject yet. I've just had a busy weekend. like because I've been gone, I had to hang out with my girlfriend and do all this other stuff. So honestly, like I, I can't make like a formal opinion yet, yet without reading. Um, but I, I think that's a really, from, from what I saw, it's like incredibly disappointing that they're like trying to sue small businesses like that little ski manufacturer and just for using the word, name backcountry. And like, I, I, don't, I don't understand how they can own that word. So, but there, there's been no choice. Like, like I said, I need to, to learn more before I can make an educated response. Yeah. I'm kind of curious, who does your design work? And do you guys ever like do guest artists or like who does the graphics on your skis? Uh, yeah, so we have a couple people every year. I mean, the main staple of most of our graphics is uh, one of my best friends, Max Miller. He actually lives in, in Brooklyn, New York. and. Um, the last couple of years, it's been Max and this guy, Ricardo Garcia, who is a tattoo artist down in Brazil. Um, we've had a lot of cool uh, artist relationships over the years. Um, and we also, we take submissions from other artists, um, but sometimes it's tough. There's like a lot of cool art out there and a lot of cool styles that we like, but the brand has kind of been developed around what Max Miller has developed in his like rougher rock and roll image. And so sometimes people will send me like this really cool badass painting of a mountain or something, you know, to something like totally foreign from what is moment in imagery. And although we like respect it, we're like, it, it just doesn't mesh. Um, so like if you're an artist or you know someone, like we are always, we always love to talk to new people and, and see that sort of stuff. How do you go about answering the question, why should I buy your skis compared to another company's when I can argue that 
the <laughs> shapes aren't all that different and the materials are pretty similar in each one. What's like the backbone behind what you're making compared to others? What kind of cookie do you have? Yeah, you want my cookie? This is my, this is Tyler Curl. Uh, he has been working at the factory since he's been like 12 years old. He flew out here with me. So this is an you know, inside job question. Uh, <laughs> so there, you can look at a lot of skis on the shelf and, and they look comparable. Um, and like I said, there are like a lot of the materials are the same, like, a, you know, same base, same edge, same this. But ski manufacturers do blend their materials a little bit differently in-house, you know, like it's the same what basic 10, 12 ingredients to make a chocolate chip cookie. And you can have a good one or you can have a great one. And what you think is a great chocolate chip cookie may not be the same, you know, uh, chocolate chip cookie that I think is amazing. And so that's what's cool is there's so many different skis out there that um, you can really try and find the blend or the mixture of what the ski manufacturer has made. Um, so are our skis absolutely the best and every sh everyone should be on them? Absolutely not. Like there's so many good skis out there. Um, but the ski that we make and the cookie that we make, like they're made by skiers, they're made in America. And we like to, we take our feedback from our athletes and our consumers. And I think that really shows in our line. Like we have a very diverse line. Like we just don't make a ski to make a ski because, oh, we don't have this category. It's like, it has to make sense. It has to ski well. And so we really try to take all that back and like just be skiers first and businessmen second. And so um, when we establish that sort of relationship with the customer, I think, you know, you can go on our website or call us and do that and see our factory. And that's not something that you can get everywhere else. Um, so if those sort of things are important to you, then yeah, it's like, we'd love to have you try our skis. And occasionally when Luke messes up and changes the cookie, you can sometimes get him to go back and make the old cookie yeah. and make the cookie heavier sometimes, yeah. which is maybe a different story, yeah. but maybe it's not a different story. So um, We've changed the recipe back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the way, I have just one quickly, um, one writing question. Um, is Yellow Glory or Sunshine Thunder a better name? Why are you talking to Scott? You like that? That's my newest purchase. Uh, this is apparently, is, this was a question asked by ON3P Skis founder, Scott Andrus. He just simply wants to know, is Yellow Glory or Sunshine Thunder a better name? Uh, he can decide. He keeps on sending me names. I bought a, my girlfriend and I have been dating for four years and, and we don't live together, but we just bought a 1972 Volkswagen Beetle together. So that's where my relationship's at. Um, and it is bright yellow and he has a text of the, my bug that I sent because I'm good friends with Scott and own three P skis. Um, so Scott and I like the bully jokes on each other. It's very yellow, yellow glory. I like yellow glory, but that's not, that's not what Samantha and I call it. We don't have a name yet. Okay. Yeah. You're working on, do we have a show of hands? Who likes yellow glory versus who likes sunshine thunder, yellow glory? Sunshine Thunder? That's better. That's in a landslide. <laughs> landslide. Okay, if you it's guys done. don't, it's kind of disrespectful to all of us here in the Gunnison Valley if this isn't officially now Sunshine Thunder. I saw, actually, we drove from Denver and I saw, I think it was today, I saw a sticker on the back of a car that said fake hippie, and I was like, I want that sticker for the bug. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. 
I was wondering as uh, moment grows and the credibility of your skis increases and the cookie kind of goes from good to great, uh, how have you watched your target market change? Uh, maybe from skiers on different parts of the sport or different levels? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, as the brand grows and we're, we're talking to more customers, um, it's, it's definitely very apparent because we deal with a lot of that customer service in-house. Um, so it's always like really interesting, like back where like when we first started and we were talking to core customers, we would always kind of recommend the longer ski. Now we're kind of recommending maybe the size down because it's like, wait, you're in Florida and you're shopping for skis? Oh yeah, I go like twice a year and they love it. You know, it's cool. Like we're, we're glad to get them on the product. But you know, like one thing that we're, we have never even considered is like, oh, we need like this narrow rental carving ski or anything like that. That's never been a consideration. Um, you know, we still make, I think more 190 plus models in the free ride world than like any other brand out there. Like we have like five different models in a, in a 193 plus in our catalog now. So that's pretty core. We make like a lot of super wide skis. So we're still taking care of like the core customer for sure. But what's cool about like um, our more narrow, um, like modern free ride design skis, you know, like we have like a PB&J or a Wildcat 108. They're like pretty four forward mounted at like minus five from true center where like a traditional European ski is way far back. So these young free ride guys want to ski this far farther forward to be more playful all over the mountain. But people that maybe don't ski as much, like they would never really consider this ski because they're like, oh, that's an expert ski, whatever, you know, it has rocker at the tip and tail, it's pretty flexed, easy to turn. But as soon as you get someone that's just a recreational skier on this product that is for expert free ride skiers, they're so much more balanced. It's the ski's rockered, it's pretty flexed for them, and they have a way better time skiing. So actually, like an expert freeride ski is also an amazing intermediate ski. So it works out. So we're not trying to, we're not going to change. We're still going to be making the big, fat, cool stuff and uh, keep on trying to make really fun ski design. That won't go away. One more question for now. As always is our tradition, uh, Luke will be hanging out at the front here. So please, if we're not getting to your question now, come up front. Then as we talked about up top, we will give any of you who didn't get a chance to sign up for our raffle, uh, run. Find that thing, I don't even know where our list is, but uh, tackle that guy, get your name on there, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll draw a winner shortly. So uh, do we have a last question? Yeah. The last question I have is, um, as a ski brand, what do you look for in like an athlete just outside of skiing? Because you know, when they're on the lift, you want them to promote your brand in the best way. So outside of skiing, what are you looking for? Like for, for athletes? Yeah, like even though they might be the best pro in the world, what do you look for in an attitude uh, to basically promote your brand in the long term? Yeah. Some guy on the lift that's not going to talk to the tourist that is like, oh, this look like really nice skis. What about him? And he's like, I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. I mean, uh, there's a lot of like, you know, like we just, we don't have the budget to go sponsor Candy Tovex, you know? Like I just can't go like buy all these cool athletes that certain brands have over the years. 
Um, I would love to do that. They're all amazing skiers. I've met some of them. They're like really great people too. Um, so what we look for as a small company, because like marketing and social media marketing is huge for us, is like honestly in like athletes today need to be their own brand and they need to be able to use um, a camera, a video camera. Um, I have certain people and athletes over the years that have like shown up and like they're amazing skiers and they just think we're going to provide the photographer and the videographer and pay for them to go be in matchstick productions. And, and that's not how it goes, man. I'm running a business. Like, and as an athlete, you are part of that business. So we're making a trade. Like, I don't care how good of a skier you are. Like, really, you have to be a good skier, right? Like, I'm giving you skis. You need to give me content. You need to give me photos. You need to give me video. You need to give me feedback on the ski. How's it working out for you? Like, I think talking and being a personable guy or girl on the lift and speaking highly of the product that you ride on is a no-brainer. Um, that's just one small piece of the pie. Um, you need, like, athletes today, like, you have to be super dynamic and be able to do all those things well, you know? Um, so, so it's a lot to be, to be an athlete. You know, from our side, we like to find people that are just super passionate about skiing that are kind of like their local heroes at their mountain, you know, like everyone, they're just kind of like local legend, like, oh yeah, he's a badass, she's a badass sort of thing. And hopefully they're pretty decent with a camera and a photo or a video, ca video camera as well. Very good. Um, as always, uh, very good questions. Appreciate that again from you guys. And uh, this has been fun. If you didn't get a chance to ask your question, please come say hi to Luke and, and do so now. Um, we're going to wrap on that. Thank you very much for coming. Yeah, and, thanks uh, for having me, guys. Um, we're going to be doing some, uh, having a few more conversations uh, tomorrow that uh, we'll be posting, I think, on our Gear 30 uh, platform. So you might want to stay tuned for that. I, I thought we exercised a lot of restraint. We, we did not nerd out very hard on... We on, nerd out. This was really hard. That's why I was trying to keep like the, yeah, the stuff we did, short. So I'm yeah. giving us a yeah. gold star. But... Uh, <laughs> If you want to hear more about ski design and the like, probably uh, be checking out and looking for a upcoming Gear 30 episode. Um, other than that, uh, we will thank Luke and then do shortly here in a minute this uh, raffle and see who just won some skis. So thanks again, everybody. And thank you. Yep, thanks. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Luke Jacobson for coming out to the Gunnison Valley and sharing his experience with us. Thanks to everyone who came out to Western. And thanks to everyone who, once again, asked such good questions. I also want to thank Luke Alley for producing this episode. And I want to thank you for listening. If you are enjoying these conversations, we'd invite you to subscribe to the Blister Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a nice little rating or review in iTunes, and be sure to tell your friends about the show. Thanks, everybody. Now, please take good care out there, and we will talk to you again next week.